Well, amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord for that worship this morning. Such a powerful reminder. In the fire and in the flood, God is with us. I just know you want to say amen right now. I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 this morning. In 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is writing to a church that uh, has come to question him, uh, whether or not he's truly a representative of the one true God. And they've begun to entertain doubts about his love for them and, and the authenticity of his apostleship. And he begins to talk to them about what it means to minister for God. And I want to draw your attention to this verse. We're going to read this verse, and then as is our custom, we will pray and ask the Lord to help us by his Holy Spirit. And then we'll get to work. But I want to, I want to, before we do that, before we pray, I just want to draw your attention to this verse. In verse 8, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians. The Apostle Paul says, we do not want you to be ignorant of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despised of life itself. But, he says, that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we, we strive to do a great many things in our own strength. Indeed, we rarely come to you first in prayer. You inevitably are always kind of put on the back shelf, and sadly, Father, we turn to you last of all when all our other options are exhausted. And this morning, God, we praise you for exhausting all of our other options. When you take it all away, and when you put us in a place in which we are powerless, we see this morning, Lord, that you do so in order to strengthen our faith in you. And you won't have it any other way. We thank you for that, Lord. It's a difficult lesson to learn, but we pray you help us to learn that this morning. Open your word to us, Lord. Illuminate the text before us. Shine upon it with your Holy Spirit and drive this truth deep into our hearts that as we seek to walk with you and minister for your name, we will suffer all of our walk with you is intended to bring us to a place where we rely on you. Drive that into our hearts this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. World War II, historical event that took place, shook the whole world, unbelievable chaos and atrocities. One person in particular that many of you have heard of, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's a German Lutheran theologian. He was a handful of German theologians to stand up to the Nazification of the German church in the 30s. And he was prominent in writing the famous Barman Declaration, which rejected the Aryan ideology of the Nazi Third Reich. Bonhoeffer's courage in standing up to Hitler and the Third Reich and in denouncing their inherent racism 
led to him being celebrated by the confessing church in Germany, along with other stalwarts who opposed what Hitler was preaching, like Martin Niemöller. Bonhoeffer went so far as to found an underground seminary, what he called a free seminary, in Finkenwald, Bavaria, which was closed by the Gestapo chief himself, Heinrich Himmler. From a very early point in World War II, Bonhoeffer was on the Germans' radar. Having his seminary shut down, though, led Bonhoeffer to joining the resistance movement, and eventually it led to his being imprisoned by the Gestapo in April of 1943. Now, the reason I draw your attention to that this morning is because there is something that he wrote from within prison that is particularly poignant. He wrote letters to family, loved ones, his mom, his dad, and not least of all, to his fiancée. These letters were eventually collected and compiled into a book that was, late, that was titled Letters from Prison by Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Among the letters that he wrote, one letter to his fiancée in particular, New Year's, 1945. The Third Reich only has a few months left. And sadly, Diedrich Bonhoeffer also only has a few months left. Of course, he doesn't know any of this when he writes a poem to his fiancée on New Year's Day. The third stanza is particularly famous. It reads, quote, Should it be ours to drain the cup of grieving, even to the dregs of pain? At thy command, we will not falter, thankfully receiving all that is given by your loving hand. Even if we have to drink the cup of, dr- of grieving to the dregs of pain, Bonhoeffer says, we will consider it from, as being from your, God the Father's, loving hand. Poignant words that became more so when three months later, again, just as the war was coming to an end, Bonhoeffer was executed in Flossenburg prison. His fiancée sent that letter, along with other relatives of his, sent those letters to be published, compiled into this book, again, Letters from Prison by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Many years later, 18 years later, in fact, after the war had long been over, across the Atlantic Ocean in the States, there was another fiancé who was engaged and was to be married in a month's time in which she and her fiancé went on a sledding trip, and tragically, he experienced an accident in which Sledding down a hill, he fell off his sled and he hit his head against a tree and he passed away. This young woman, this fiance, grieving the loss of her fiance, began to exchange a series of letters with her, what were to be her future in laws. And they began to write back and forth. And as she was seeking to comfort them and as they were seeking to comfort her, she stumbled across Dietrich Bonhoeffer's little book, Letters from Prison. And she mailed it to her, what would have been her father-in-law. And this particular man went on grieving the loss of his son, Joe Bailey. He went on having read this particular letter that Bonhoeffer wrote to his fiancée. And he began in his grief to write his own poem, a poem entitled Heaven. And he published a book titled Heaven with a series of poems in it. And then 12 years after that, he received in the mail a letter from a friend of his in Boston, Massachusetts, a pastor 
a friend that he had grown up with as, as kids, they had gone to the same school. And this friend wrote him a letter 12 years later, 30 years, 30 years after Dietrich Bonhoeffer had been executed, in which he said, I gave your book last night to a woman who was on her deathbed. She read your poems, and she was particularly struck by your poem of heaven, in which you quoted Dietrich Bonhoeffer's letter to his fiancée. She read that poem over and over again, and she held my hand, and she told me that she was comforted and ready to go see Jesus and her fiancé. The woman that died that night reading that book of poems by Joe Bailey was none other, it was none other than Maria von Wiedemeyer, Dietrich's fiancée from 30 years prior. I, I mentioned this story to you this morning because God's comfort in our lives is like that. We are comforted by each other. And as we seek to minister to each other, as we seek to help each other in our burdens and in our struggles, what we find is that we get back much, much more than we give. Here is a woman who, as she is grieving the death of her fiancé, takes a letter that he has penned and written to her and turns that letter, one of her most precious possessions to be sure, this letter of her now-dead fiancé, and she turns it over to a publisher in the hopes that that letter will bring some comfort, some reassurance to other Christians. And then 30 years later, as she is dying in a hospital bed of cancer, that letter comes back to her, not verbatim, as though it's from her fiancé, but it comes back to her from a friend of a friend of another man who wrote another poem, who quotes it. And she dies remembering that initial comfort she received in that letter from her fiancé, but even more so knowing that God was faithful over the course of 30 years to bring it all the way around, full circle. She must have known in that moment that God was with her and that he had sovereignly ordained the circuitous route of this letter to arrive at her hospital bed on that particular night. We, church, are called to minister to each other. I start with that story this morning, and in my prayers over the last several months, and as I particularly thought about what the focus of the message would be for this sermon this morning, had no idea that Rock Baptist Church would be joining us this morning. Praise God, we're glad that you're here, but I think there's a double meaning in this message this morning. My prayer is that our brothers and sisters from Rock Baptist and Logan Lake would be encouraged to know that we are here to minister to them. But the real reason why I began to compose this message this morning from this particular scripture was because over the course of the pandemic, we have all fallen into bad habits and we have fallen away in some respects from actively seeking to minister to each other. This preaching of social distancing, it's taken a toll where we have now bought into the lie that we best serve each other by staying away from each other. We know now that we're called to come back together, and of course it's safe to do so with the advent of vaccines and various treatments. Let's do so, okay? Let's get back together and start ministering to each other, all right? Let's get out of this bad habit of social distancing, and let's begin to actively minister to each other. 
we are all called to minister. We are all called to serve each other. We are all called to labor for the benefit of those around us. This is all throughout the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So there you have it. You've been given a ministry, a ministry of reconciliation. Reconciling, seeking to help reconcile this fallen world with God. That's obviously a very evangelistic ministry, proclaiming the gospel. We're all called to do it. But what I want to draw your attention to here is that the scriptures call this a ministry, a service. And if you're in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, you have been given that ministry, that service. And again, this is an evangelistic ministry. We're all called to do it. But there are other types of ministries in which we can engage. Ministry is by everyone for everyone. Paul alludes to this, and I've already shared the scripture verse with you in Romans chapter 1, verses 9 to 12. God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul is saying, I want to see you so that I can bless you, that I can minister to you. And he goes on to say, this isn't just me to you, this is all of us. He says, quote, that is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Paul is saying, I want back from you some of that blessing that I also am intending to give to you, that we would both be encouraged and blessed by each other in the ministry, the, the service that God has given us to do. In fact, this is a part of what it means to walk with Jesus Christ, a basic walk. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Ephesus, says, I, therefore, a prisoner of Christ, urge you to walk in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which you have been called. That's the very beginning of chapter 4. Within chapter 4, he talks about walking in this manner that is worthy of the Lord, worthy of the calling to which you've been called, He says that multiple times all throughout the chapter. So this is the theme that is running through the apostle's mind. But he makes that initial statement right in verse 1. I urge you to walk, therefore, in a manner that is worthy of the calling to which God has called you. And right after that, he says, this is why God has given apostles and prophets and pastor teachers. He says, quote, that to equip the saints, that is all of you, to equip the saints, he says, for what? For the work of of the ministry, which means that when he prays in verse 1, that he is praying for all of us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the Lord. And then he goes on to say, this is why you got a pastor or a teacher in your life to equip you for ministry. We understand that ministry within the body, mutual edification, service to one another within the body, all of this is a part of what it means to walk with the Lord. As we give, we are to expect that the Lord will give back to us through those to whom we serve. But we are called to give. The reason why we're going to 2 Corinthians this morning, and we'll be spending a couple, of week in, a couple of weeks in 2 Corinthians, is because in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul is incredibly autobiographical, talking about his own life, his own ministry, the things he's endured, the experiences he's gone through, 
and the afflictions that he has suffered. And the reason why I want to take you to 2 Corinthians this morning is because I want you to understand that ministry will always come with sacrifice. Ministry will always come with suffering, and we are called to do that. We are called to serve each other, doing so knowing that it will bring suffering, that it will bring sacrifice, and to embrace that suffering and that sacrifice as we seek to serve each other. That's exactly what Paul is driving at here in 2 Corinthians. And so I invite you to look with me. We're going to read it one more time, beginning in verse 3. Now, this first section is totally different than any other letter that Paul writes. If you're a reader of the New Testament and you understand Paul's style, he generally begins with a prayer of thanksgiving and a blessing, a prayer of blessing for the church congregation to which he is writing. But that's not how 2 Corinthians starts. 2 Corinthians starts with him praising God and then beseeching the church at Corinth to pray for him. Notice how it begins there in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts, uh, who comforts us in all our afflictions. And then if you jump on down to verse 11, he says, You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He starts off praying and praising and rejoicing in God which is consistent with his other letters, praising and rejoicing in God because he's the God of comfort. And then as he works his way through this opening section, he concludes not with a prayer for the church in the Corinth, although that is his traditional manner, but he concludes saying to the Corinthians, you guys got to be praying for me that God would be glorified. So verses 3 to 11 form a unit. And I would generally walk through this verse at a time because there's some really interesting logic that is involved here. I don't have time for that this morning. I'm going to take the whole chunk and I'm going to get through it all in the next 12 to 15 minutes. Right? (laughs) Fingers crossed. So we're not going to actually do a verse-by-verse exposition, but there's four things I want you to see in this particular passage this morning. Four purposes that God has for those who administer for him. Four purposes in leading us into suffering. And this is totally different than what the world ascribes to. Whatever spirituality, whatever kind of faith or religion you encounter in the world, suffering is not something that they're walking into. Suffering is not something that they're embracing. Indeed, most of the world's spiritualities are trying to provide reasons for why you should get out of suffering. Oprah's favorite spirituality, Oprah Winfrey, The Secret. I'm sure you remember that book from about a decade ago. Well, what is The Secret? The big secret, apparently, is the law of attraction. You attract whatever comes your way. So if you believe you are going to fail, you're going to fail. You're going to attract failure. If you long for success, well, then you will succeed. Therefore, all we need to think about is happy thoughts. And, of course, we will be happy. Similarly, Scientology, religion of choice for all the Hollywood movie stars, Tom Cruise, among others, It's made a lot of news in the past decade. Again, its basic understanding is that all suffering is of our own making. It's not an actual thing. It's not real. Whatever pain we may experience, it's only in our imagination. Sounds an awful lot like like Buddhism, but they, they decry Buddhism for other reasons. 
If we all, they say, would reach a place of enlightenment, then we will cease pain and we will cease suffering. And with Tom Cruise as your poster boy for that particular religion, one could be tempted to think that that's true. Then there is the Kabbalah, Jewish mysticism. It's a way for humans to experience God through symbols and other such things. However, most of us are more familiar with Hollywood's elite and their association with this movie again. When I have talked to true followers of Jewish mysticism, they have told me that Madonna's version of the Kabbalah is primarily a perversion of the real deal. (laughs) Is anyone surprised? Apparently, her version is more about creature comforts than truly experiencing the divine. And we have this within Christianity, too. We have our own sort of perversion of Christianity that reduces faith down to creature comforts. Of course, I'm referring to the health and wealth gospel, prosperity gospel. It's on all of the televisions and radio stations, all of the traveling evangelists, all the famous, most, I should say, most of the famous preachers writing books and publishing all these books that you can find in the various bookstores and having these conferences and whatnot across the United States. The largest church in America preaches the same message every week, and it is not the gospel. Of course, I'm referring to Joel Osteen's church there in Houston. You can have your best life now. Think positive thoughts. Trust God, and he will give you everything you've ever wanted and ever dreamed for. I start to talk in a real breathy voice when I think about imitating Joel Osteen. I shouldn't do that. That's wrong, but I I do. This kind of thinking was probably true in Corinth. The reason I say that is because when Judaizers and various people trying to subvert the church in Corinth show up in Corinth, they attack the true gospel that Paul is preaching by saying that there's no way Paul can be a true minister of the gospel because just look at all the suffering this guy goes through. And Paul doesn't run away from it. In 2 Corinthians, he says, man, shipwrecked, beaten, whipped with the lash multiple times, five times he comes within an inch of his life, imprisoned, always on the run. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't shirk away from it. But just the opposite, one of the things that Paul says here is that this suffering was given to him by God. It is not a mark of a false preacher of the gospel. Indeed, it is a mark of the true preacher of the gospel, that he will experience suffering. So as we look at 2 Corinthians, one of the things that I want you to know is that when we think about suffering, when we think about afflictions, in 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul gives us a pattern for ministry. And what it is not, what is not our pattern for, vi- for ministry, it is not victorious, painless, unmitigated victory after victory after victory in order to show everyone how great Christianity is, and if we'll just believe in Jesus, we'll never know any pain or hardship. That is not the pattern of ministry that Paul is giving us in 2 Corinthians. Here's what it is. Here is what ministry is. Serving God at my own expense, with my own sacrifice, for the benefit and the blessing of others, to the glory of God. Pare that down for you a little bit. Ministry is sacrifice or suffering for the benefit and the blessing of others, to the glory of God. Now, in verses 3 and following, 
God says, Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort. Notice what he says there. Paul is saying in verse 5 that suffering is a given. It's not optional. He says that the sufferings of Christ flow into our lives as we minister. It's a given. Now, most of us in comfortable Western culture like to apply this verse to some sort of very weak sufferings. But when we think of the sufferings of Christ, we must consider the intense rejection, the suffering that Jesus experienced on his way to Calvary. Paul identifies his own sufferings in verses 8 and 9 with the sufferings of Christ. He says that the sufferings of Christ that flowed into his life almost killed him. He says, I despaired of life itself. I'm not saying that if you have not been beaten or nearly killed or imprisoned for the gospel that you have not suffered, but I do want to make two things clear at the outset of this passage. One is that suffering in this life was reality for Christ, our Messiah. It was reality for the Apostle Paul who wrote the majority of the New Testament. And it will be a reality for us and anyone who follows Jesus Christ. There will be persecution. There will be loss. And there will be pain. And God calls us to all of it if we would minister for the sake of his name. Number two, this suffering is not missing all of the partying that uh, all of your buddies back in high school did or, or perhaps in college or university. It's not your parents not letting you go to play the hockey game, young people, because you didn't clean your room. That is not the kind of suffering that we have in view here. It is the kind of suffering that makes people question whether or not you really are cursed by God. That's the kind of suffering Paul is talking about. That's what's in view in this passage. The kind of suffering that everyone else is attempting to alleviate themselves of, to get out of, is the distinguishing mark of true gospel ministry, where you will preach Jesus though he slays you. Did you catch that? Now, I, uh, <laughs> I, uh, I don't want to be the king of pessimists here. Um, I don't want you to interpret what I've said above to mean that we are the official religion of pessimists the world over, that to be a Christian is basically to look at everything sort of like Eeyore Eeyore from uh, Winnie the Pooh, where you're just like, oh, the world is out to get me. That's not what we're talking about here with Christianity. To follow Jesus Christ, it is a walk of joy. Indeed, it is. It is. It's a walk of joy. But it will take us through some dark and deep valleys. Our end is not trials, but trials line the path that leads us to effective ministry. Trials line the path that lead us to eternity with God. So, four things, four purposes I want you to take out of it this morning. Number one, when God brings these trials and these afflictions into our life, number one, he does so in order to reveal the character of God to us. Make a note of that. God reveals more of himself to you when he leads you into pain and affliction. 
Notice the words that Paul uses to describe God in these verses. He says, quote, this is going back to verse 3, the Father of mercies, the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our afflictions. In verses 9 and 10, he goes on to say, this is the God who raises the dead, and he is the deliverer. The reason Paul can describe God in this way is because, God had, because Paul had experienced God in this way. The only way to fully experience God's comfort in your life is to need God's comfort in your life. The only way to experience God's compassion is to need God's compassion. In other words, if we are to experience all that God is, if we're going to have this close, personal, intimate relationship with him, then we're going to have to be brought to a place where we must have all that he is, and that includes the fact that he is the God of comfort. If we are to experience God as our comforter, there's no other way to do it but then to suffer. Suffering allows us to experience not only the comfort of God, but the God of comfort. Did you hear that? Suffering allows us not only to experience the comfort of God, but God himself, the God who is the God of comfort. When we experience trials, we are able to know God in ways that we simply do not otherwise. It seems that people who have endured suffering, whether it's physical or mental or emotional, when people endured suffering, they know God in ways simply that others who have not gone through those same trials do not. As sinners, of course, when we come to that place of conviction where we know we're sinners, where we know we stand under the judgment of God, we are then offered Christ as the solution. As sinners, we rejoice in the deliverance that Christ gives us on the cross. But what about when we are grieving? Where do we turn in that moment? Again, not to pick on the ladies here, but I know a number of ladies who turn to chocolate when they're grieving. I just need some chocolate. (laughs) Careful, brother. Your wife is sitting next to you this morning. And the ladies are like, what about the men? I know a number of men who find comfort at the bottom of a bottle. This isn't to pit men against women. It's just to say, where you need, when, when you need comfort, where you turn, that's your God. And God is not at the bottom of a bottle. And God is not found wrapped in a Hershey's chocolate bar wrapper. God is found in his word. God is found in Christ on the cross who also suffered. When we experience trials, we come to learn him in this way. We come to experience his presence in a deeply personal way. A number of years ago, I was in a hospital. Uh, I had been called there to visit some folks whose dad was dying. They were all Christians, and he was on his deathbed, and it was it was almost certainly going to be his last night on this earth. And they, they had invited me to go there in order to, to be with the family, to read some scripture, and to minister if I could. And I was very, very young and very, very new to the ministry at that point in time, and I didn't know what to do. And I, I remember somewhere that, you know, Psalm 23 was like the psalm that always got read at funerals. So I had, you know, bookmarked Psalm 23 in my Bible, and I'm going there. This is like my first year, my first month in ministry. And they're like, come and, and just be with us as, we, as we're letting our father pass away, as we're watching him die. And, and I was terrified. And I showed up there, and they're sitting there around their dad's bed, and uh, they're crying, and he's not really able to talk or respond. His eyes are kind of fluttering open. He might be conscious. We don't know. And, and they're grieving, and so there I am with my Bible, and I'm just waiting for somebody to 
to say, okay, preacher, share the word. And I'm going to be like, boom, Psalm 23. But they're sitting there talking. And they look at me and they say, Pastor, we've talked a lot about the scriptures today. Would you just pray for our dad? Man, that is not what I had scripted in my mind. What do I pray? Do I pray that God would just miraculously heal him? That he'll just get up out of that bed and walk home and be fine? Do I pray that God would take him quickly? That he wouldn't suffer any pain? See, what... Whatever you pray in that moment, you're thinking as a pastor, this is going to impact these people's spiritual walk with Christ. It's going to teach them something about my theology or what the Bible is saying. And if they trust me, and they do trust me because they've asked me to be here with them, whatever I'm about to say, they're going to cling to that. And I didn't know what to say. I'm not sure whether I should have prayed for miraculous healing or whether I should have prayed for a quick death. Years later, I think I've got it sorted out. But by God's grace in my life, do you want to know what I prayed in that moment? I said, God, I pray that this family would know that you are the God of all comfort. That's what I prayed. I said, amen. Again, I got my thumb kind of stuck there in Psalm 23. I'm just waiting because that's what I had pre-scripted in my mind should happen. They never asked for a scripture reading. We sat down. They started to talk and reminisce about some memories from their father's life. And the, the one daughter said, you know what I was just reminded of? She just pipes up out of nowhere. She says, I was reminded of that passage from the Gospel of John in which Lazarus died and Jesus grieved. Was that where I was going to go with that? No. I was going Psalm 23. I prayed that God would be there to comfort them, that they would know his comfort. And out of nowhere, the Holy Spirit impresses on her heart the the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So she pipes up. She's like, I, I just, I just, you know what this reminds me of? This reminds me of Lazarus being raised from the dead. And they started to talk about Jesus grieving and weeping when he learned that Lazarus was dead. They understood in that moment that Jesus had experienced that pain, the loss of a loved one. And then they gathered around their father's bedside. They held his hand. And the other son, the, the brother of the sister who made this comment, leans close to his dad and he says, Hey, dad. What's worse than dying? And his dad's just kind of sitting there, non-responsive, and he says, I think the worst thing is dying twice. Uh, Can you imagine Lazarus having to die twice? (laughs) He died. Jesus raises him back from the dead, only to have him die later. Isn't that funny, Dad? And I'm thinking to myself, I'm just not really sure. Like, what do you say in that moment? I decided to say nothing and just sort of nod my head somberly like yes this is this is godly you know what happened in that moment he came awake and he looked at his son and he couldn't say anything but he smiled and he nodded his head a few hours later he passed away that story was told at his funeral They're grieving the loss of their dad, but they know that he's trusted in Jesus. They know they will see him again. And in that knowledge, in that faith, they do grieve, but they don't grieve as the world grieves, where this is the end and there is no more. They grieve knowing there is more, which allows for just a little bit of levity, just a little bit of humor. Is that not the comfort of God? I'm sure that it is. God 
brings us into trials that we would experience him, that we would know him as our comforter. Only God can bring that passage of scripture to mind, not the preacher. I don't always know what to say, but you know who does? The spirit who indwells you. Purpose number two. When God brings us into trials and into afflictions, he does so in order to allow us to help others. Paul goes on in verse 4, he says, God comforts us in all our afflictions that we may be able to comfort those who are any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. This is probably the most practical application of the verse. It is the most practical use of difficulties in our lives. And yet it is the hardest use of difficulties in our lives for any of us to realize. What we have to do is to realize that our sufferings, as bad as they are, are not primarily, or I should say exclusively, about us. Notice who benefits from Paul's sufferings. Notice who benefits from the comfort that he receives. Not him He does benefit from God's comfort, but ultimately that comfort passes through Paul and all of his sufferings and all of his afflictions, and it comes to the church at Corinth. The purpose for the comfort that Paul receives in verse 4 is the ability to pass that comfort on to those who are experiencing similar trials. That's what he says there. Again, in verse 6, Paul said, Paul's distress and his comfort are for the benefit of the, of the Corinthians. And he realizes that what he experiences is an opportunity for him to help others who are experiencing those same things. We rarely take this perspective. We rarely take that perspective. Generally, when we experience difficulties, we think that those trials are all about us. Oh, I must have done some heinous sin in our life, in my life. Or, oh, you know, I, God, God must be stripping me of something in order to, to sanctify me. Maybe he's punishing me. You know, and, and those things might be true. I, I don't want to dismiss all of that outright. But when we jump to those conclusions, it is incredibly self-focused and self-absorbed. It could also be possible that God wants to lead us through the valley that we can hold the hand of anyone else who might also be going through the valley later on down the road. That we can relate, that we can identify with them. That is very, very possible. Again, many years ago, in 2005... I traveled with a team from my church in Texas to New Orleans. You may have recalled in 2005, Hurricane Katrina wiped Louisiana, New Orleans, I should say, New Orleans. That's not how they say it. It's New Orleans. It wiped New Orleans off the map. You think the Texas drawl is bad? Just go to Louisiana. (laughs) Hurricane Katrina wiped the city. The city's below sea level. It wiped the city off the map. We had gone in with a group of people to begin ministering there to help with the reconstruction effort. And there was a fellow from another city north in Texas who was there. We all holed up in this church. We were sleeping in this gutted, flood-ravaged church, sleeping there, and then going out by day and helping to gut and tear out homes and, and to rebuild homes. And as we were there, we met this fellow. His name was Lee. He was from northern Texas. As we were there that week helping to rebuild Lee, he was there on this trip, and after he had arrived there, he learned that his brother back in North Texas had tragically been killed in a car accident. The timing of it all just seemed terrible. But instead of rushing home, and and I had just met him, we didn't talk about these things, I, I had learned the night before at dinner 
It was mentioned as a prayer request. Lee just found out that his brother died in a car wreck. Let's pray for Lee. The next morning, we go out to continue gutting this house and doing this drywall work, and Lee is there. And, of course, I didn't say anything, but I was thinking to myself, well, he must be leaving soon to go back to Texas to, to be there with his family, plan the funeral of his brother. But then he was there the next day, and eventually somebody, it, the word got passed on to me, no, Lee's going to stay. He believes God has called him here for a reason, and he's going to keep doing the drywall work in this, in this lady's house, helping to repair it. And so we, we just kept on going. And then later that week, I was walking down a hallway, which I had just put the dry, we had just been able to walk through like the studs, you know. Then we put the, the drywall up and you're like going to take your shortcut and you're like, oh, I can't go that way. I have to actually go the real way now. And I remember walking down this hallway and I passed a room and Lee was talking to the lady who owned the home. And she shared with him in that moment, I overheard, she said that her brother had died in the flooding. And Lee said, my brother died this week too. And they held hands and they prayed together. Later on, as we were finishing drywalling this house, we all were invited to go into this closet. It's like a coat closet. And sign our names, right? Like, I was here helping to restore this house. And Lee went in, and he signed his name, but he wrote this inscription, for your brother and for mine, to the glory of God, that all may know Jesus Christ. In that moment, Lee's suffering, his hardship, was not ultimately about him and grieving the loss of his brother, but he recognized in that moment They've been given an opportunity to use his pain to bless this woman who was also in pain. That is one of the things that God is trying to do in our lives when he takes us through these terrible circumstances. Which leads us to verses 9 to 11. In verse 9, Paul says, Indeed, we felt, talking about his time in Asia, he says, We felt that we had received the sentence of death. Paul talking about his efforts as a minister, his attempts to preach the gospel, he came to a place where he says, you know what, I was convinced that we were just going to die, that there was no escape, that one way or another, we were done for. It was over. God had brought us to this place to preach this gospel for no other reason than that we should just die there. And indeed, that's how Paul's life and his ministry ends. It ends in a prison cell. It ends in an execution. It ends by sentence of death from Caesar, from Nero. But it doesn't end here. But he thought it was going to end here. He makes this statement in verse 9. He says, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Previously in verse 8, he said, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. And to what end? To what end did God bring Paul into this? That he would experience this sentence of death, that he would despair of life, that he would be convinced that he was going to die? He says in verse 9, he says, That was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Paul provides another purpose here. He says that his personal sufferings were going to be used by God to draw his focus and his attention away from himself and ultimately to draw his focus and his attention to God that he might rely on God. All of his life belonged to God. 
There was to be no reliance upon himself. His preaching, his ministry, his day-to-day activities, all of it was to be lived in the conscious knowledge that he had to depend upon God for all of it. Here you are today, many of you from Logan Lake. You don't know whether your home is good or not. I mean, they say no structures were lost, but probably some homes were damaged to some extent. Was he damaged? We don't know. Here you are tonight, today, and over the last couple of days, you have known that your home might very well burn, and you're here trusting that it is the Lord that's going to provide for you. And the reason that God takes you through those circumstances is so that you would be forced to look to him as the one who provides for you. I don't think that the Logan Lake catching fire, the whole fire thing this last week was by accident. I know, I mean, i have been planning this message for three weeks. I didn't know when I started three weeks ago that you would be with us this morning, but God did. I didn't know three weeks ago that I'd be walking through the call of God on our lives to minister and to serve and to bless each other and that all of this was to cause us to rely on God. I didn't know that that message was going to be preached to a bunch of people who'd been evacuated because their homes were under threat of fire. I didn't know any of that. But God did. Paul says all of this, all of this was a blessing in his life to compel him to rely on God. And it's true. Many of you are aware that I served in the United States Marine Corps. It was a short-lived career. I broke my back. I was unable to walk. You see me standing up here and walking, and it seems fine. That's, that's because God healed me. I uh, was told at one point that they weren't sure that I'd ever be able to move my legs from the waist down. I was, they were saying I was going to be paralyzed. In that moment when I was injured, I was in the hospital bed, not able to move. Body broken. My career in the Marine Corps was over. Praise God. I really wanted to be a Marine. You laugh, but God had other plans for me. He wanted me to be a minister. I didn't fully appreciate the gravity of that call on my life at that time, but he did. But there I was in the hospital bed at the beautifully named hospital in Camp Pendleton called, quote, Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton. The military isn't big for naming hospitals after beautiful things or saints or doctors or anything like that. There I am in this hospital bed. And at that point in my life, I had been singing this song, My Only Hope Is You. And so there I was in the hospital bed, and I just began to sing the chorus over and over again. My only hope is you, Jesus. My only hope is you. From early in the morning to late at night, my only hope is you. I sang those words over and over and over again. For the first time, as I was singing them, I felt like I really knew what they meant. In that moment, I had nothing to rely on, nothing to hope in, except Jesus Christ. My friends and my family were not there. My wife was back in Texas, not even allowed to come visit me. We had been on preparation. We were deploying to Iraq later that month as in 2004 as a result of the war on terror. So I didn't have anybody. My friends weren't there. My wife wasn't there. Jesus was there. And I found that he was so satisfying. He was more than enough. 
It was difficult, but it was necessary for my spiritual maturity. A life without suffering often means that we're going to give our best efforts, for sure. But when we face trials, God brings us to a point where we surrender our strength for his. We surrender our wisdom for his wisdom. Our ministry then truly becomes his ministry as he is the one who is working through us. And trust me, that is a good thing. That's what we must have. All of this brings us to the fourth purpose. God does all of this that we all would look to God and praise him and that he would be glorified. Here's the culmination of any situation in the life of a believer or a minister. Verse 11 says, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. He starts off the passage, you'll recall in verse three, he says, praise be or blessed be God. Paul personally praises God for bringing him through his trials, revealing more and more of himself, equipping him to help others and extinguishing any and all self-reliance. Further, others are going to praise God because of what Paul endures. He says in verse 11, many will give thanks. This is the result of all that is happening in the life of the Apostle Paul. Who among us today has not read some passage of Scripture somewhere in the New Testament in some letter that Paul has written 2,000 years later and has not said, thank you, God, for speaking this into my life? And we do so oblivious that the way that God brought that Scripture to us was by working through the life of an apostle who's calling to Ananias as he's telling Ananias to go tell Paul to go be an apostle was this, go and tell him, for he is going to go before kings and he's going to go before governors. And he says, I am going to show this man, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's the calling on Paul's life. And Paul embraces it. And he went through unbelievable agony. And all of this resulted in the Holy Spirit inspiring God's word to be written by this man's hand as he went through those trials. And those letters come to us today. And who among us cannot quote some verse that Paul has written that has not sustained us and blessed us and guided us in that moment in which we needed a word from the Lord the most? Anybody want to raise their hand? I meant who has not? I I started, that was a rhetorical no. (laughs) Sorry. So you're raising your hand because you have needed it, right? All right, well, that was a long sentence. I just kept going and going, so maybe you forgot how I started it. Okay. Anyway, I believe that God is absolutely glorified in this suffering of the Apostle Paul, and I think he is glorified in our suffering as well when we suffer for the sake of his name. I think that there are two ways that God is glorified. One is that people are thankful when God answers their prayers as they pass through those trials. Paul and everyone praying for Paul must rely on God. God is the hero in this story, not Paul. God is the hero. Paul points out that God took him into that situation to cause Paul to rely on God. It isn't, hey, check me out. Look how great my faith is. He says, God did this to cause me to hope more in him. God is the hero. In other words, it was good that God took me into those circumstances. It was good that God afflicted me because God, as the hero of this story, that as a faithful shepherd led me into this persecution and these afflictions did so so that I would hope more in him. We are thankful for that. 
God is the hero of the story. He is glorified when we look at our life circumstances, and no matter what, we can say, thank you, God. Number two, God is glorified because Paul shows in his life that God is of greater value to him than anything else, including living an easy life. The passage just wouldn't end the same way if Paul wrote to say that when they were in Asia, they despaired of life, and they despaired even to the point of death, so at the end of all, they just didn't have a peace about it, and as a result, they had decided to back off the ministry, and they've decided to quit altogether, and they're going to retire to a nice uh, dwelling somewhere in the Greek Isles, never to preach the gospel again. That would just be a really tragic and unfortunate ending to this particular passage, wouldn't it? How many of us are living for that ending, though? Where what we want most in life is a well-stocked RRSP and a comfortable retirement and the opportunity to own a house somewhere by the lake somewhere and to sail off in our sunset twilight years no longer pushing for God's name to be glorified in all the earth. Paul is saying, no, 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 no. To worship Jesus means more to me than that. Does it mean more to us? I talk to people all the time who come to me and they read their Bibles. They're faithful to do a quiet time every morning, but they come to me and they say, my faith feels dry. My faith feels stagnant. I feel like God is so far away. They're telling me that they're not experiencing that intimate closeness with the Lord. And one of the questions I always want to push back is, how are you serving him? In what way are you ministering for him? In what way are you following him to make his name famous so that he is leading you into these conflicts and these these afflictions where you see his miraculous hand? And do you know what I discover time and time again? We may be faithful to read our Bibles. We may be faithful to get up and pray every morning. But all too often as Christians, we've checked out of ministry. We've checked out of the calling to which God has called us, which is to be actively involved in serving in the church, serving in the ministry of reconciliation, proclaiming the name of Jesus. And as a result, our lives have gotten really really comfortable. And in that comfort in which we are not pressing up against darkness, we find it's boring. And what that has resulted is in somehow we sense that God is so far away from us. God is not far away. He seeks to be there with you. He wants you to experience him as the God of comfort in your life. But I'm here to tell you, if you would know him the way that Paul clearly knew him here in 2 Corinthians... You have got to minister. You have got to be willing to proclaim the name of Jesus Christ. After the service this morning, a number of individuals are going to be out in the foyer. Except for Dustin Savage, our music minister, he's going to be up here on the stage. But we're going to have the kitchen committee out in the foyer. We're going to have Sunday school represented out in the foyer. We're going to have evangelism represented out in the foyer. I want you to pray now in these closing moments. Where has God gifted you? And to what ministry is God calling you? We're going to have Awanas out there in the foyer. We're going to have youth group out there in the foyer. As you're here this morning, as we're looking towards September to starting another year of ministry, God has called you to a ministry. He desires to lead you into conflict that he can be closer to you, that you would experience more of him. 
be thinking about where the Lord would have you to go. There's an interesting passage in the gospel. And I'd start off by quoting the title of a book written by John Ortberg. If you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. In Matthew chapter 14, the disciples are rowing across this lake. And they're going, and they've left Jesus back on the shore, and it's in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden they see this figure walking out there on the water, and the waves and the wind are against them. And they see Jesus out there walking on the water, and they think he's a ghost at first. In Matthew 14, it says, when the disciples walking... When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified. They said, look, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. And we would, we just kind of gloss over that. But I mean, the question needs to be asked, why would Jesus freak them out like that? I mean, isn't that kind of mean? Isn't that like a kind of a dirty prank? I mean, in one sense, you could look at that and say, Jesus frightened these guys. He scared them. And yet he's God. And he had a purpose in it. Immediately, Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It's me. Don't be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come out to you on the water. Peter is saying in that moment, God, if you're God, if you're Jesus, Jesus, if it's really you, I believe if you call me to come to you on the water, I'll come. I trust in you. I know you've got the power to hold me up. I want to see the miraculous. That's what Peter is saying. But at a very basic level, Peter is saying, Lord, you're over there, and I'm over here, and I'd like to be over there where you are. He wants to be closer to the Lord. So he says, hey, if you'd have me, I'd come. Jesus says, come. Come on, then. So Peter got out of the boat and he walked on the water and he came to Jesus. But when he looked away from Jesus and he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink. And he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? We long to know more of Christ. We long to have a deeper, more intimate walk with him to experience his presence more fully in our lives. It will look like suffering, but it will look also like you're walking on the water with Christ. But if you'd have that, you got to get out of the boat and follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this morning as we look towards a new ministry year, Our prayer, Lord, is not that you would rescue us from hardship or difficulty. We know that all ministry comes with great sacrifice. God, help us to embrace that suffering and to give that sacrifice. God, help us, Lord, to give for the blessing of others to the glory of your name. Call us into the ministry that you have for us. Show us the path we should go. And be with us as we seek to exalt your name this year. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.